I want to speak today on Romans chapter 6, 7 and 8. I'm not going through the whole chapters, but the main teaching of those chapters. Those of you who have heard me, and many of you have heard me for many years, know that my major emphasis, the Lord's put on my heart for more than 40 years, is how to lead God's people into their full inheritance. It's like the land of Canaan. Moses could not lead the Israelites into Canaan. So God raised up Joshua. And another name for Joshua is Jesus. It's the same name, Jehoshua. To lead them into Canaan. The law could not lead people into this overcoming life where the giants are killed one after the other. But Jesus came to lead us into this promised land, which is the new covenant life, where the giants can be killed one by one. We don't have to be discouraged when we see the giants in our life. We don't have to be like those ten spies who say, Oh, we were like grasshoppers in front of them. We can never overcome them. We must be like Joshua and Caleb who had faith. They didn't look at their muscles. They looked at God and said, if God helps us, these, these people will be like bread that we can eat. That should be our attitude to every single sin in our life. I feel that Christians need to see more seriously what sin is. And the only way to see it, I, as from, for my life, for I've been a Christian 59 years now since I was born again, is by looking at the cross of Jesus, meditating on that, and seeing how much he suffered. I don't mean the physical suffering. When I was a kid, I thought of the physical suffering. Oh, how terrible it must have been to be whipped and the crown of thorns on his head and the nails. I used to imagine all that and I used to weep. when I, If ever I saw a movie of Jesus being crucified, I'd weep, but the next day I was just the same. It was only temporary and I'm sure many of you have that feeling too. You think about Jesus and then uh, you feel a little sad and sorry but then you go around and sin just the same the next day. But when God opened my eyes to see something else on the cross and that was how the Father forsook him. Now we just read it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there's a lot of depth and I want to encourage all of you to meditate on that sentence that Jesus spoke on the cross that for three hours he was forsaken by the Father. And you know, people talk of a God-forsaken place. There is no God-forsaken place on this earth. Even the terrorists and suicide bombers have health. Who gives it to them? God. Do they deserve it? No. So there's no God-forsaken place. Those terrorists have healthy children. God is a good God. He's good to evil people. He makes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. So if the sun is rising on us, doesn't mean we are okay. It just means that God is good. If the rain falls and waters our plants, it doesn't mean we are okay. It means God is a good God. God is a good God. But when we look at the cross of Calvary, and we see Jesus hanging there and crying out, and the earth shaking and the sun being darkened, what Jesus experienced in those three hours is eternal hell. That's what it means 
to be forsaken. The God, the only God forsaken place in this universe is hell. And it's very difficult for us to imagine that. That's why Jesus used word pictures like uh, burning fire and worms that never die and fire and brimstone. Those are all word pictures because we can't understand what it means to be forsaken by God. It's the most terrible experience and I will not wish it on my worst enemy, to tell you honestly. I would not want my worst enemy to go to hell because it's such a terrible thing and for all eternity. That's the punishment of man forsaking God. And because Jesus was infinite, God himself, he could experience in three hours eternity. For us to experience eternity, it has to be eternity. Millions and millions and millions of years. But for Jesus to experience eternity, three hours was enough. And what he experienced was not just for me, for the billions of people who have born on this earth. He died for the sins of the world, it says in 1 John chapter 2. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. That's from the time of Adam, all the billions of people who lived. He took all their punishment, faced eternal hell, and what for? For my sin. And when I, look at that, when I look at that, I can never love sin. I'll hate every single sin. And by sin I mean anything unchristlike. There are different definitions of sin in scripture. In 1 John chapter 3 it says, Going against the law, transgression of the law, that's sin. That means the law told you to do something and you didn't do it. Or you, it said don't do this and you did it. The other definition of sin is the last part of James chapter 4, the last verse which says, If you that's sin. So then we have two definitions of sin. 1 John 3, transgression of the law. And James 4, the last verse knowing what is right and not doing it. But here is the highest definition of sin that I've discovered in scripture. All have sinned, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now the phrase glory of God is such a vague type of thing that most of us don't understand. We think of some bright light. That's how I used to think when I used to read the Bible first. Glory of God, what does that mean? But it's not just a bright light. It's not the glory of heaven. The glory of God, James, uh, John 1.14 says, was seen in Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. That perfect life that Jesus lived, full of grace and full of truth, is the glory of God. So when it says we've come short of the glory of God, put those two verses together, Romans 3.23 and John 1.14, and you see that all have sinned and come short of the life that Jesus lived. That's what it means. All have sinned and come short of the life of Jesus. That is Romans 3.23. So my definition of sin goes beyond 1 John 3 and James 4. It is anything that is contrary to the life of Jesus or anything that I cannot do in fellowship with Jesus. Anything. 
that raises the bar very high. Do I want it there? Or do I want the Old Testament standard, which is the Old Covenant standard, Ten Commandments? Most of the world, the laws of the governments of the world, human beings. But Jesus raised the bar high. Now the question is, at what level do we want to live? Do I want to... I say this like living in the Stone Age. In the Stone Age, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have cars. They used horses and lamps. You want to go back to that age? Nobody wants to go back to that age. We all want to live in this age with all the facilities. That is the difference between the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. It's like comparing today's world with the Stone Age. To me, it's very clear like that. And Jesus came to lift us higher. And he lived his life to show us that that was possible. Because the devil is always whispering in our ears, it's not possible for you, it's not possible, it's not possible. And the Bible says, let us look unto Jesus and run this race. It is possible. Every time the devil says it's not possible, don't say you've attained it, doesn't matter. But I say, I'm going to get there. Even Paul, at the end of his life, when he was more than 60 years old, having walked with God for 30 years, says in Philippians 3, I'm not yet perfect. I've not yet attained. I've not yet become like Jesus. But it doesn't mean I'm at the same level as I was when I was unconverted. Oh, no. I made a lot of progress up this mountain of becoming like Jesus. I don't get discouraged because I didn't reach the top. But I'm going to press on. I publicly confess, Paul said, that I have not attained. Jesus is perfect. I'm wanting to. That's the goal I have. Because the Bible says in Romans 8, 29, that we were predestined to become like Jesus Christ. That's the destination written on our ticket. To become like Jesus Christ. That's why Christ came. Not just to forgive our sin. Because they had forgiveness of sins under the old covenant. Psalm 103, 1,000 years before Christ, David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your sins. But what they didn't have was being saved from sin. And the first page of the New Testament says, Angel tells Joseph, This baby that Mary is going to have, you've got to name him Jesus. The meaning of which is, he will save his people from their sins. Not forgive their sin, but that's already done. But he will save his people from their sins by dying, forgiving them and saving them. Two parts to it. Full salvation. Not just salvation from hell. Not you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from hell. That is a false translation. But that unfortunately is what many Christians believe. I hope there's nobody here who believes that the New Testament is you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from hell. No version of the Bible has that. He will save his people from what? From sin. So that's what you need to ask yourself. This Jesus I believe in, has he saved me from hell or is he saving me from sin? Very important question. The devil wants to rob us of our inheritance by saying he'll only save you from hell. 
I say, get behind me, Satan. He's also going to save me from sin. Not all of a sudden from everything, but progressively. I learned that from the first chapter of the Bible. In the first chapter of the Bible, the earth is dark and empty and without form. And two things happen. That dark, empty, formless world is a picture of my life, unconverted. And the Holy Spirit, it says, begins to brood over it. And that's what happens to us when we were born again. The Holy Spirit begins to come into our life. And the second thing, the Word of God goes forth. God said, God said. God could have made that earth perfect in one moment. But He didn't. To teach us a lesson. He did it in stages over six days. Day by day by day by day, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God... The first day it was a little better, light came in, the second day a little still more, third day still more. Finally on the sixth day, after God has made Adam and Eve, what does it say? They were in the image of God. And that's a lesson for us. We start off dark, empty, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, formless, having lost the image of God, no light full of darkness, and the Holy Spirit works in us, we come to new birth. And we read the, and hear the word of God regularly and day by day by day by day by day, one day the image of God will be completely in us. So we should never get discouraged. And if you slip and fall in the race, get up and run. I've heard of people who slipped and fell in even Olympic races and got up and ran again in 10,000 meters races, long races and won. Because they didn't just lie down and say, oh, no hope for me. Imagine a man running in an Olympic Games and so many people running with him and the people ahead of him and he trips and falls and it actually happened. And he got up and he didn't give up. He said, okay, these guys are ahead of me, but I'm going to run and win. And he won. That's the determination we Christians must have. If you fall, don't give up. I'm going to run and win. And that verse that Santosh quoted, run in such a way, 1 Corinthians 9, one, run in such a way that you will win. And he says only one wins the race. But he's telling the entire Corinthian church, you can all come first. That's the wonderful thing about the Christian life. That everybody can come first, not just one person. In the earthly races, one person comes first. In the Christian life, he's telling, and who is he writing this to? The Corinthians were the most carnal, worldly church in the first century. Paul was so disgusted with them, he said, I'm your father. Shall I come to you with a rod, give you a spanking, because you're so indisciplined and defeated in your Christian life? Why does a father do that? Because he wants his children to come first. Paul had such a heart, he prayed for them, he wept for them. It was not a teacher spanking a student. It was a father who didn't want to shame his children but wanted the best for his children just like we want the best for our children. And he wanted them to come first. And he, that verse shows me the most carnal people can come first. Are you defeated? Carnal? You can come first too. What does it mean to come first in the Christian race? It means to enter heaven and Jesus saying to you, Well done! good and faithful servant. That is what it means to come first. To me, that's what it means to come first. I'm not looking for some physical crown on my head. 
the Bible says those who have crowns will throw it at the feet of Jesus. We won't have any crown. Sorry to disappoint you, but the, you won't have any crown when you move around in heaven. We'll throw it all at the feet of Jesus who deserves it all. But I do want to hear, for many, many years I have wanted to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. When I come to the end of the race, my dear brothers and sisters, I hope that is your passion. If it's just a weak desire, you'll never get it. You have to have a passion. Do you know how these people come first in the Olympics? They train for four years. Think of a man running the 26-mile marathon, and he wants to get into the Olympics. Every day, he'll run 26 miles. I don't think he enjoys it. But he's determined to get the prize. It's only such people who get the prize. And he's disciplined in his eating, in his sleeping habits, eating habits, because he says, I want to get that prize. And Paul says, be disciplined like that. Not, we're not talking about physical discipline and running. We're talking about our attitude to sin. I want to be disciplined. There's something I want to do, but I'm not going to do it. That's discipline. Do you think those runners who are running the marathon are not tempted when they see a bowl of ice cream and all the other things that will make them fat and heavy, they won't be able to win the race? They are tempted when they see that. Boy, I really feel like eating that, but I've got to win the race, so I'm going to deny myself. Or they don't feel like getting up in the morning again at 6 o'clock to run a marathon today. You think they all feel like getting up? No. But they tell themselves, I am going to get up because I want to win the prize. And I want to say to you, my brothers and sisters, temptation is real, attractive. But you have to discipline yourself and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to retort in anger just because he spoke to me in anger. I'm not going to be bitter towards that person because he was bitter towards me. No. I'm not going to speak evil of him if I heard that he spoke, spoke evil of me. I'm tempted, sure, like this athlete is tempted to eat up all that ice cream. But he says, I won't do it. Because I want to win the race. Say that. The Holy Spirit of God fill me so that I will hear from the, word, from the mouth of Jesus, my Savior, one day. Well done good and faithful servant and every one of you children teenagers adults everyone can hear it we can all come first let that be a desire in your heart at least from today say lord i'm sorry i've been indisciplined in the past with my eyes what i look at and read i want to be disciplined i've been very indisciplined with my tongue saying things here and there I want to be disciplined from today because I want to hear you say, well done, a good and faithful servant. That's all. And if I want to get that, what the Lord has shown me is, you remember the words that the Father from heaven spoke at the baptism of Jesus. You all know that when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. And let me expand it. I have watched him for 30 years in Nazareth. He's never done a miracle till today. He's never preached a sermon till today. Just like many of you, never done a miracle, never preached a sermon, never mind. This is my son who's never cast out a demon, never healed a sick person, just like many of us. All he's done is lived at home, faithfully, with his mother, with Joseph, with four younger brothers, and two younger sisters at least. 
Joseph had died later on when Jesus grew up. There were at least seven people in the room. He was working just like a lot of us work, earning his living. A much poorer job than many of us have. Working physically as a carpenter. Trying to get orders for tables and stools and whatever he was making. He had to struggle to earn his living in Nazareth. His aim was not to become the richest carpenter in Nazareth, no. His aim was to earn his living and take care of his family. So, he would never cheat. He would never sell a table which had wood which was cracked and covered up with paste or something like that. If it happened like that, he'd tell the customer, this is cracked over here, I've just covered it up with some paste. So you can pay less. That's the type of carpenter he was. And if some, if some poor widow asked him to make something, can you make a stool for me? He'd make it. And when the widow asked her, Jesus, what's the cost of that? He said, that's a gift for you. He'd care for the poor. How can you become the richest carpenter in Nazareth? That that's the way you work. This is the Jesus I want to follow. And the father looked at that for 30 years, the way he behaved at home, the way he never got angry with his four younger brothers or two younger sisters. He never got irritated with them, though they tried to irritate him so much. And uh, never once got angry, never once got irritated. And he studied the word, you know. The, the Bible says when he was 12 years old, he could discuss scripture with adult people. I remember when I got converted... I thought of that. Jesus was 12 years old and he knew the scriptures. Okay, let's assume that he began to read when he was about 5 years old. So he had 7 years in which he, know, he, wanted, he could know the scriptures and there had no Bibles like this at home in those days. <clears throat> it was, the Bibles were in parchment scrolls. It was very, very expensive for anybody to have. Nobody had it in their home. There was one in the synagogue. And I can imagine the six-year-old Jesus going to the rabbi in the synagogue and saying, Rabbi, can you read something from scripture for me? Can you read something from Isaiah? And Jesus would listen and try to absorb it, absorb it. And maybe the rabbi had half an hour to spend. He was excited that this little six-year-old boy is interested in scripture. Probably nobody else would come to him like that. He'd go home and he'd meditate on it. And come again the next day. Rabbi, can we go to the next chapter? The rabbi said, sure. Imagine if you had a six-year-old boy like that. Boy, I'd be proud of him. Is it too early for these little children to learn scripture? I taught my boy scripture from a very young age. I said, you've got to know scripture. Jesus did it without even having a Bible at home. He was serious about his heavenly father. And he grew up, grew up, grew up, and did that every day, whenever he could. He, he had to go to school to learn his normal education as well. This was a little half an hour some other time during the day. And by the time he was 12 years old, he had heard, obeyed. I hope none of you believe that Jesus came from heaven with all the scriptures crammed in his head. No. He was born like us. He grew up like us. He had to learn like us. 
and he learned the scripture just like any of our children can learn and it was more difficult for him because he had to go somewhere walk there and get somebody to open the Bible and read it to him and at the age of 12 he could confound the doctors in the temple those scholars by asking him things because you know he had meditated on what he heard a lot of people read the scripture don't meditate on it he meditated on it so these are the type of things Jesus did and at the age of 30 never having preached a sermon never having done a miracle exactly like us we have a Bible we can be faithful 90% of Jesus life 30 years was spent at home and in his place of work only 10% of his life three and a half years was in public ministry 90% of your life is spent at home and your place of work right absolutely 10% of your time is in fellowship with other Christians and some ministry you do it's exactly like that all of us 90% of our life is in our home and in our place of work and there Jesus was faithful and the father said this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and I remember I asked the Lord I said father can you say that about me look down from heaven and say this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased even if I never preach a sermon never do anything forget ministry don't compare yourself never compare yourself with somebody who's got a ministry Jesus had no ministry public ministry what we call ministry in 30 years you don't need ministry for the father to say this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased you don't need to preach a sermon you don't need to cast out a demon you don't need to heal the sick you don't need to do any of these things which the world calls ministry and the father can say about you this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased even if you're a little girl or a little boy the father can say that just do one thing that Jesus did read the Bible and if you can't understand something ask your dad and mom to explain it to you try and read a little bit every day I'll tell you it's amazing what you can learn in seven years anyway I started at the age of 19 I was born again I'd never read the Bible before that I was born again when I was 19 and a half and I grew up in an Orthodox Church I mean I was born into an Orthodox Church and my I knew Jesus died for my sins so many times I'd say Christ come into my heart but I was never very sure but I was sure when I was 19 and a half Jesus came into my heart by based on one verse him that cometh to me I'll never cast out I believed it and for the last 59 years my ship has never drifted the anchor was cast so I want to encourage you to really seek for this voice of approval from God then you will come first in the race then you will hear when you get to heaven well done good and faithful servant so I started at the age of 19 to read this book the Bible all my spare time I wasn't married then and I in the midst of my work if I got a little spare time I would carry a little pocket Bible and it's so easy for you nowadays you can have it in your phone we didn't have phones those days smartphones I, mean, I had a little pocket New Testament that I would carry with me everywhere I went if I was sitting in a bus traveling in a train I'd open it and read it and uh, at home whenever there was I had the full Bible that I would have in my room and I could read it 
And by the time I was 26 years old, seven years, that was my goal. Jesus from the age of five to 12 knew the scriptures. I said, I can know it too. I really got to know the scripture well. And I want to tell you today that the foundation for my ministry, I didn't know those days God's going to make me a Bible teacher or give me a ministry. I never knew anything about that. I just wanted to know Jesus. I loved him so much because he was forsaken on the cross for my sin. That's why I said, Lord, I want to know you. And there's only one book through which I can know you, so I want to know it. And the foundation for my entire ministry has been those first seven years when I studied the Bible. And I want to say to you, my dear brothers and sisters, encourage your children to study the scriptures. You never know what ministry God has for them when they are 30 years old. If you have laid a foundation in their heart of the knowledge of scripture, many parents are not doing that. They hope the Sunday school will do it. No, the Sunday school is for children of unbelievers whose parents are not teaching them at home. My children went to Sunday school all their childhood days up to the age of 15 or 16 in CFC Bangalore. But I didn't trust the Sunday school to teach them scriptures. I taught them scripture at home. And I was traveling. Whenever I was at home, I would teach them scriptures and Annie would teach them when she was there. The Sunday school was extra. So, your children go to Sunday school is extra. It's your responsibility. The Bible says, fathers, instruct your children, Ephesians 6.4. Teach them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. It's the father's responsibility. And if the father is an irresponsible person, then the mother must do it. Like Timothy's mother. Timothy's father didn't take that seriously to teach his son Timothy the scriptures. So the mother took on that responsibility. So if the father is irresponsible, there are a lot of irresponsible fathers today who don't care to teach their children scripture. You mothers must do it. But you can't afford to lose your son. Timothy, when he was 20 years old, Paul looked at him and said, Hey, I want him on my team. Imagine if your son grew up and at the age of 20, some apostle like Paul said, I want him on my team. Boy, that was the greatest honor that Timothy's mother got. Boy, I don't want him to be a great businessman and a millionaire. To be a co-worker with Paul, what greater honor than that? But that is because a mother did the faithful job of teaching that child the scripture. And Mary also, I'm sure, helped Jesus to understand the scripture. So I say that as an introduction. In Romans 6, 7 and 8, we read about this victorious Christian life. Romans 6, we have three stages. In Romans 6 is our unconverted stage. In Romans 7 is the old covenant stage of our life. And Romans 8 is the new covenant stage. And I want to explain it very simply so that everybody understands. And I want to explain it like three marriages that we go through. We are the bride. You know the Bible says we are the bride of Christ. So we are the woman. And we are married in 6, 7 and 8 to three different men. That's the picture here. It's an illustration, but I think it will help you to understand what the Christian life is all about. What is the difference between being unconverted? What's the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant? Because some people, you know, they hear me speaking so often of the New Covenant. So what's this? All the New Covenant, New Covenant? I'll explain to you today what it means. What does it mean? In Romans 6, you're married to the old man. Romans 6. And then you get baptized, and it says in Romans chapter 6, 
Romans chapter 6 verse 6 Baptism is a testimony It's mentioned in verse 4 But verse 6 is Knowing this that our old man Was crucified with Christ So that This body of sin Might be done away with So Again the emphasis is So that we will no longer be slaves to sin Because if we have died We are freed from sin So before we were converted Romans 6.6 6 is the conversion experience. Our old man is crucified with Christ. The old man is this desire to sin. Not, it's different from the flesh. The flesh is the temptation to sin. The old man is the desire to sin. Or to use another example, the old man is like a servant inside my heart. When the thieves, the robbers who are the lusts in the flesh come and say, Hey, I want to come in and rob you of your... Purity. I want to rob you of your joy. I want to rob you of your peace. And the old man says, the servant says, come right in. Steal whatever you like. Take away my joy. Take away my purity. Take away my peace. Whatever you want. Take away my love. Make me a hateful person. The old man is an unfaithful servant. And one day God killed it and put a new servant inside. Now the thieves are still alive. The thieves are not killed. That's why even after you're converted, you find that thieves, the lusts are still tempting you. But when they come and knock at your door, the new man says, no, I'm not going to let you in. The new man is the one who's a desire not to sin. So then the question comes, how does the believer sin? The believer sins because the new man is too lazy to eat and take exercise and he's so weak that he tries to keep the door shut, but he can't keep it shut. And the lust come in. That's how a, a believer sins. No, unbeliever sins by the new man, old man opening the door. So that's one illustration. But here's, I'm using another illustration here. Jesus always spoke with illustrations. There was no prophet in the Old Testament that spoke with parables and word, word pictures like salt and light and keep your conscience like you keep your eyes. And I've understood so much through the parables and word pictures of Jesus that I decided in all my life in my preaching I'm going to use word pictures and illustrations to illustrate the truth because it helped me so much. So, here's the first marriage. Now, forget the other illustration I used that's not applicable here. The old man is the man I was married to before I was converted and you are married to when you're unconverted, your unconverted state. And he's an evil man. He's an evil husband. He tells you to do wrong from morning till night, get angry, hate, lust, commit all the sexual sins you can, live to make money, live to enjoy pleasure, don't worry about God, everything will be okay. He's, he's a wicked man. Keep a grudge against those persons. If you're jealous of somebody, you should be jealous. And don't take these sins seriously. The old man is evil through and through. And when you look at your unconverted days and my look at my unconverted, we did so many wrong things. Because the old, we, I was married to this old man. But then a day came in your life and mine when we got fed up. As we are, come, we are approaching being born again. We are coming to the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm fed up of my sinful life. All the wretched things I've done that hurt you, I want to come to you. You do something for me and the Lord kills my husband and I'm free. 
this man who always made me do wrong, I had to be subject to him, he's dead now, the old man is dead. That marriage is over and now I want to be married to Jesus Christ. I want to finish with this old man. And I see this wonderful man now, whom I want to get married to because I finished with my first marriage. Now I want to come to the second marriage, Romans 7, where I see this wonderful man whose standards are so high, very high, upright man who never does anything wrong, will never demand that anyone else should do wrong, very high standards. And I say, boy, this is the one I want to marry. I think this is Jesus Christ. Okay, this must be Christ because who else has such a perfect standard? So I marry him and I, I discover that he never asked me to do anything wrong. Never. He never asked me to hate anybody. He never asked me to be jealous. He never asked me to lust or steal or tell lies or love money or anything. But he has very high standards. To use one, just one example of his high standard in one area. There are many areas, but here's one area. This new husband of mine says, I want breakfast every morning at 8 o'clock. Not 8.01, not 8.02. It must be 8 o'clock. You know the name of this husband? The law. The old covenant. I'm now, I thought it was Christ. But it wasn't. It was the law. And many Christians make this mistake. They are born again. And instead of marrying Christ, they get married to the law. To a bunch of rules and regulations which makes them miserable. I went that way. I went that way for many, many years. Never being able to meet that standard. To, as I said, to use one example. Breakfast at 8 o'clock. And here, I'm struggling, and with a great struggle, I make breakfast by 11.30. And the law says, no, it must be 8 o'clock. And I struggle and struggle and struggle and fail. You know, just like a lot of people hear, hear the commands of the New Testament and struggle and fail and struggle and fail. There are tremendous commands in the New Testament. Rejoice always, give thanks in everything, pray without ceasing, do all things without murmuring and grumbling. This is what I mean by breakfast at 8 o'clock. And here I am constantly failing. 11.30, I struggle, struggle, struggle. With great effort, I may manage 11.15. But it's nowhere near 8 o'clock. And what do I do? Get discouraged. But yet I know he's never asking me to do anything wrong. He's not asking me to hate anybody. or He's just, his standard is so high that I just can't make it. And then I say, Lord, I made a mistake here. I got rid of my old husband, but I married the wrong person. And now the sad thing is, this husband will never die like the other one, because the law of God is perfect. God will never kill it. What am I doing? Am I doomed for life to be married to this man and this man will never die because God will never kill his law? I'm discouraged. Exactly like Christians who want to live a godly life but are not able to reach it, get discouraged. That's life under the old covenant. It was like that for me. Years and years and years and years. Falling, getting up, falling, getting up. Never able to reach that standard of 8 o'clock breakfast. I'm nowhere near it. So, 
this husband is never going to die. What is the solution? You know what God does? Listen to this wonderful way. I say, Lord, is there any hope for this situation? And God says, there is. He kills the wife. That's me. The marriage is broken again. And, and then, you know, God is a God of resurrection, raises me up. My marriage to the law is broken. Thank God I'm finished with that guy. And then he says, God says, this is Jesus. You, got, you made a mistake last time. And my old marriage is broken, you know. Death breaks a marriage. I hope you know that. God killed me, broke that marriage, raised me up, and married me to Christ. That is the new covenant. Romans 7, verse 4. Please read it. You understand it much better now after you heard this illustration. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law. The law didn't die. You were made to die to the law. Why? So that you can be now married to another. Christ who was raised from the dead. That now we might have children through Jesus Christ, which is fruit for the glory of God. For the rest of your life, you'll understand Romans chapter 7 verse 4 because of what you heard today. Now when I come to this new marriage, I'm still the lazy person. I can't make... Um, you know, the other thing, I'm, the law was not only breakfast at 8 o'clock. Let me say all the other things. When you wash my clothes, they must be spotlessly clean. That's the law. They must be ironed perfectly, not a wrinkle anywhere. The house must be spotlessly clean. Everything, breakfast, 8 o'clock is just one thing, and I could never manage it. Could never manage to keep the house clean, never manage to keep, wash all the clothes perfectly. It was a demanding, and yet, he never asked me to do anything wrong. That was life under the law. And now, when I come to Christ, I discover that his standard is no less than the law. Exactly the same. Because God gave the law. What does he say? Breakfast at 8 o'clock. House must be spotlessly clean. Clothes must be perfectly washed. Ironed without a wrinkle on them. But there's a difference. He says to us, let's do it together. You and I. I'll help you to make breakfast at 8 o'clock. I'll help you to keep the house clean. I'll even help you to wash the clothes. I'll help you to Iron the clothes. Wouldn't you ladies love to have a husband like that? Who wouldn't want a husband like that? The standard is high, but he's helping you in every single thing. That is new covenant. And I cooperate with Jesus and with great effort. After about a year, I managed to make breakfast by 10.30. Still not 8 o'clock. And the Lord says, never mind, never mind. We keep going. We keep going. And I work with him and work with him. After a few years, it becomes 10 o'clock. Still not near his standard. I still haven't managed to wash the clothes perfectly or keep the house spotlessly clean or iron the clothes perfectly. But it's much better than it was as a progression. And after about 20 years, I managed to make breakfast by 9 o'clock. Wow! 
is getting better and better and better. And I believe one day I'll be perfect like Christ wants me to be. But the wonderful thing is He's helping me all along, all along. Dear brothers and sisters, that is the new covenant message. That's what the devil has robbed Christendom of. Now I'll show it to you also from Romans 8 verse 4. You know it says here, verse 3, what the law could not do. What the law could not do. The law couldn't help me to do all these things. God has now done. Because he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemned sin in the flesh, so that this requirement of the law can be fulfilled now. Eight o'clock, breakfast and clean house and everything else. We can work towards that. That's what the Bible says. This is the new covenant life, married to Jesus Christ. And in practical terms, what it means is, like I said, that this progression to perfection. That's why I said earlier at the beginning that Paul said, I'm not perfect. I haven't reached that standard of breakfast at 8 o'clock, but it's getting better and better and better and better. I wasn't like the old days where I make breakfast at 11.30. It's an illustration, but I hope you understand that and I hope it encourages you to believe that if you're making that progress, you're on the right path. Don't wait until you've come to that day where you've got rid of all your anger and got rid of all your murmuring and all your grumbling and all your complaining and you never have any anything of those wrong attitudes. It will come, but you'll know you're progressing. But if you're discouraged married to the law you go backwards this is why the Holy Spirit has come now I want to show it to you a little more clearly the Old Testament law was written in Exodus chapter 20 and I want you to see what it's like in Exodus chapter 20 this is old covenant life it says in Exodus 20 you know the Ten Commandments and I want to say to you that all the Ten Commandments were, you shall, you shall not. That's all. You shall have no other gods but me, verse 3. You shall not make any idol. You shall not take the name, this is verse 3 and 4. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain, verse 7. Verse 4, uh, verse 8, the fourth commandment, you shall keep the Sabbath day holy. Fifth commandment, you shall honor your father and mother, verse 12. Sixth one, you shall not murder. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery, verse 14. Eighth, you shall not steal, verse 15. Ninth, you shall not bear false witness. Ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, tenth commandment. What are the ten commandments? You shall, you shall not. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall, you shall. That is old covenant. So when you hear a voice only saying, only saying, you shall do this, you shall do that, you shall not do this, you shall not do this, and that's all you hear from day and night, I'm not, I'm not surprised if you're discouraged. It'll discourage anybody. It's like that husband saying, breakfast at 8 o'clock, this house must be spotlessly clean, my clothes must be perfectly washed and not a speck of dust. It's a miserable life. This is old covenant Christianity for many people. There are others who don't even bother about this. 
They say, oh, who's going to live? This is impossible. Forget it. They don't even attempt it. And they go backslide and some of them finally lose their salvation. But now I want to show you the new covenant. Turn to Hebrews in chapter 8. This is a very important chapter. This is the most important chapter in the Bible describing the new covenant. Get to know it. Hebrews is a great book. And listen to this. In Hebrews 8, it says here, in verse 6, Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. He is the mediator of a better covenant. That's like saying the third marriage is better than the second marriage. You all agree that Jesus is better than the law as a husband. He is the mediator of this new covenant. Do you know that Jesus used the word new covenant only once? Only once, at the Last Supper, he took the cup and said, This is my blood of the new covenant. Sacred words related to his blood which he shed on the cross for my sin. So I never despise that phrase, new covenant. Don't ever despise it. It's the word Jesus used when he spoke of his blood. And it's called here a better covenant, established on better promises. I'm surprised when people despise that phrase. And say, what do you say, new covenant Christian? That's what I am. And I'm proud of it. My Savior used it when he took the cup and said, this is my blood. It's precious to me. I didn't understand it for many years as a Christian, but the more I understood it, it has become precious to me. And I see the devil had robbed me of my inheritance. And I look around at Christians who are robbed of their inheritance. I want them to inherit it. Okay. And then it says in verse 7, that first covenant, the old covenant, was faulty. The Bible, it says, says the old covenant was faulty. If you live under that life, you live a faulty life. It is faulty. And that's why God had to choose us to make a second covenant. It's not because God made a mistake. He's just saying the old, in other words, the old covenant could not bring you to the place where God wanted you to be. It was a law, it was a husband who never helped you. He just told you to do this, do this, do this and never helped you. Faulty, that's not the way God wanted it. But it was a stage to bring you to the third stage. You had to see the help, your own helplessness. And then you come to Jesus. Let me tell, give you an illustration. Do you remember in John 21... After the resurrection, how Peter and his disciples went fishing? That's Old Covenant. From 6 o'clock in the evening till 5 o'clock next morning, they fish and fish and fish and fish and fish. Nobody to help them. And not a single fish. That is Old Covenant life. Then in the morning, <clears throat> Jesus comes and says, Well, boys, have you got any fish? He has a sense of humor there. He knows they got nothing. But he taught them a lesson. You try to live this life in your own effort, you will fail and fail and fail and fail and get nothing. Now just listen to me. Throw your net on the other side. And all of a sudden the net is full of fish. That is new covenant. But this is different from all the other catch of fish that Peter ever had. When he comes to shore with this huge fish, he doesn't, got it. He doesn't have his chest out saying, look what I caught. No, he's very humble. I never did this. Jesus did it all. 
Well, not all. I did cast my net. I had to do a little part in it. But Jesus filled the net with fish. That's new covenant. The old covenant is struggle, 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 struggle from 6 o'clock in the evening till 5 o'clock in the morning and get zero. New covenant is in a moment. Your net is... There are many pictures of this. If you look for it, you'll see it everywhere. Old covenant is water. Jesus turns it into wine. That's new covenant. And that's better than all the other wine they drank before in the marriage in Cana. Okay, now we come here. Here's the exact word. Hebrews 8, verse 8. This is the new covenant I will make with the house of Israel and house of Judah. And that applies to the church today. It's not like the old covenant, it says. And then he explains the new covenant. Please listen carefully. The new, this is the covenant, he says, in verses 10 to 12. And if you have never understood it before, you'll understand it tonight, today. What is it? I will put my law into their mind. I will write them in their heart. And I will, verse 12, and they will all know me as Father. Not only the mature saints, verse 11, the last part, from the least to the greatest. They won't have to, verse 11, they won't have to teach each other, oh brother, know the Lord, like the Old Testament prophets. No! The Holy Spirit will come in you. You'll know the Lord yourself. In the Old Testament, only the whole pro prophet had the Holy Spirit. And he had to tell people, this is what the Lord's doing. This is what the Lord wants you to do. But he says, not like that now. That's Old Covenant. Now, I will come and dwell in you. And you will know me personally as Father. From, not from the greatest to the least. From the least to the greatest means the youngest believer can know me. And I will be merciful to their iniquities. That means he'll forgive all our sins. And I will not even remember their sins anymore. It's going to be blotted out. You know in the Old Testament, sins were not cleansed. You never read in the Old Testament that anybody's sins were cleansed. It says, blessed is the man whose sin is covered. Psalm 32. The forgiveness there was only a covering of the sin. It's like if I take a, a thick cardboard piece and cover my sins here it's covered you can't see it it's hidden but if you lift the cardboard it's there in the new covenant it is cleansed it's wiped out and there's nothing underneath there's nothing to be covered it's all cleansed it's gone I will remember their sins no more this is new covenant what was covered under the old covenant is cleansed or think of a blackboard where all your sins are written down with a chalk but a sheet is put over it's covered that's old covenant in the new covenant, they remove the sheet and take a wet sponge and wipe it all out. There's nothing there. I will remember their sins no more. It's so much better. That's why I don't live in condemnation. You don't have to live in condemnation. He says, I won't remember your sins anymore. But the thing I want you to notice here is this. Go back. What did, what did I say the old covenant was? You shall, you shall, you shall not, you shall not, you shall, you shall not. Now see, new covenant. Hebrews 10. 8.10, sorry, chapter 8, verse 10, what we just read. I will, I will, I will, verse 12, I will, I will. Five times, I will, I will, I will, I will. See the contrast now. The old covenant was, you shall, you shall, you shall not, you shall, you shall not. Now the Lord says, new covenant is not like that. I will, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. It's Jesus coming and helping us. What do I have to do? Very little, cast the net into the sea. In every miracle, 
You know, Jesus could do everything himself. If Jesus did everything himself in our lives, we would be robots. You know, if God had made Adam like a robot, moving like these robots, he would come to the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the program inside would say, no, not this one. And he would turn around and he would walk towards the tree of life. God didn't make us like robots. He wanted us to make a choice. I have free choice and I reject what God told me not to eat. I will take part of the tree of life. That's why all he wants us to do is say yes. And he will help me to do it. He says roll away the stone, the easy part. I'll do the 99% difficult part, raise, him from, raise Lazarus from the dead. Now Jesus could have rolled away that stone on his own. But he, then it'll, the work will all be his. He says, I want you to do 1%. I'll do the difficult part, you do the easy part. This is new covenant life. In the old covenant was you do it all yourself and you fail and fail and fail and fail. In the new covenant, in the old covenant is like that. In the new covenant it says, let's do it together, but you've got to do only 1%. And little by little we find that God writes His law in our mind. What does it mean when it says God writes His law, puts His law into my mind, verse 10? That means in my mind He gives me a desire to do His will, to obey His commandments. Then He says I'll write it in my heart. That means He'll give me the ability. I need two things, desire to do God's will ability to do God's will. He says, I'll put the desire in your mind. And I want to tell all of you sitting here, if you have a desire to do the will of God and to please God, don't assume that it came from you. God put it there. Never, never forget where you came from. I don't know whether you sing that song here about remind me, remind me, dear Lord. Roll back the curtain of memory once in a while, Lord, show me where you picked me up from and where you have brought me. Show me what you have done for me. But I am human, and humans forget. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. I sing that many times, often with tears in my eyes. Remind me, Lord, where you picked me up from. And remind me where you brought me. But I am human, and I forget. So remind me, remind me, dear Lord. Where were we? And the Lord brought us here and the Lord wants to do a lot more in us. And he does, always it's the easy part. You pour the water into the water pots, the Lord says, I'll turn it into wine. The Lord could have filled the water pots himself. That would be robot Christian living. No, I want you to make a choice. I want you to say yes. And even that, I put the desire in your mind. Moses came down with two tablets of stone. God had written with his finger on two tablets of stone, four commandments in one and six in the other, four relating to God and six relating to our fellow men. And now he says, I will do the two tablets now are your mind and your heart. With my finger, the finger is the Holy Spirit. He will write his Lord, give us a desire to do God's will and the ability to do God's will. Turn to Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is written there in simple words. God works in you. Verse 13. Philippians 2 verse 13. God works inside you 
And whenever it says God works inside you, it's always the Holy Spirit to do two things. First, he writes it in your mind to will his good pleasure. Then he writes it in our heart to, to work his good pleasure. You see there? It's the same thing. What is written in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10 is what's written in Philippians 2.13. God works inside me through the Holy Spirit to make me desire His will and make me do His will. If God has already worked in your mind to desire His will, that means He's written His law in your mind, why won't He do the second part and write it in your heart as well? That's grace. In Hebrews 13, it's says here in Hebrews 13 and verse 9, the middle of verse 9, it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Strengthened for what? To do God's will. That's the same thing. God strengthening me to obey His commandment by grace. Why don't we get that grace? There's a law of God. It said, mentioned in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, He gives grace only to the humble. He gives grace to the humble, but He's opposed to the proud. And if we have not got grace, my brother, sister, to be strengthened, to keep His commandments, put it down to pride. No other reason. Sin will not rule over you. Romans 6, 14. Because you are not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant, under grace. Why don't I get that grace? I know the times when I have slipped and fallen and God had spoken something rudely or thought a bad thought. I said, Lord, why did I slip? When it says sin will not rule over me. At this particular moment, I was not under grace. And why didn't I get grace? Or rather, not, not that way. I didn't get grace. Why didn't I get grace? Because somewhere I was proud. Show me where I was proud. So when I fall into sin anytime, I, say, I don't say, Lord, why, didn't, why did I fall? I say, Lord, show me where I was proud. Because if I was not proud, you would have given me grace. Then I would have overcome. Every time I say that, and the Lord shows me. My attitude to someone last week, or something I said there, or some other place where I didn't give the glory to God, I took it to myself inwardly. I repent and progressively I go one step higher. This is the Christian life. It's God working in us to desire His will, to do His will progressively. And the result is we become more and more like Christ and more and more the Lord can say about us, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Let's trust Him for this. God wants to do this. And this is why He has put teachers in the church to teach God's Word. You know, the Bible says as we approach the last days, Paul told Timothy, I want to read this in 2 Timothy 4, in closing. <clears throat> Timothy, 2 Timothy 4. It's very seriously He says it. I solemnly charge you. Look at the number of phrases he uses. It must be something very important. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, in the one who will judge the living and the dead, by his appearing, by his kingdom. Almost seven things there. 
Did you count it? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, who judge the living and the dead by his appearing, by his kingdom. What is this you are emphasizing so much, Timothy? Preach the full word of God. Be ready to preach it when you feel like it and when you don't, when you don't feel like it. And what should you do with the word of God? Reprove people. Rebuke people. Exhort people. And be patient. They may not like it. But reprove them. Rebuke them. Exhort them. Why? Because a time is soon coming when they will not like to listen to the message of holiness. The word sound doctrine is a Greek word from which we get the word hygiene. Hygienic doctrine. You know how hospital floors are kept hygienically clean and operation theater is kept hygienically clean without any germs. People will not like hygienic doctrine where they say we don't even want one germ here. We don't even want one sin in our life. An operating theater in a hospital, the doctor doesn't say, well, keep it generally clean. No. You know how these surgeons go for uh, an operation? They first scrub their hands for a number of minutes. And even then, it's not cleaner. They put surgical gloves, which have, which have been made pure in steam, so that all germs are killed. Then they touch a patient. That's hygiene. And people will not like that type of standard in holiness. Ah, what does it matter if there are a few germs? That's how death comes in. That's how death comes in an operating theater and people are killed. Paul tells Timothy, don't be a preacher like that who just tolerates something here and there because you can keep people happy. The time will come when they will not want to listen to this type of hygienic doctrine. They want to have their ears tickled with people, with teachers who, according to their own desires, Woe unto a church where the congregation decides what the preacher is going to preach. That's doomed to be Babylon. Teachers according to their desires and Christendom is full of people. There are churches today, what do the young people want? You want this type of music? You want these lights and all in there and rock music type of music in the pulpit? Let's have it. They accumulate teachers according to their own desires. The songs may be evangelical, but the whole spirit is the spirit of the world. You want a preacher who will crack jokes and make, um, make um, a lot of humor and keep you happy and never tell you about your sin? The time will come, Timothy, when that will happen and we are already seeing it all over the world in many, many churches. And once you go down that path, there is no limit to where further it will go, to all types of forbidden areas in marriage and all that divorce etc and not only they will uh, get teachers according to their own desires they'll turn away their ears from the truth what is the truth Jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free from sin John 8 32 they won't want to listen to the truth that sets them free from sin they'll only want to hear how to go to heaven and they will turn aside to myths stories which will keep them unprepared for the kingdom of God. And so that when Christ comes again, what will happen? It says in 1 John 2, when he appears, there will be two types of believers on earth when Christ appears. 1 John 2, 28, 
little children abide in him otherwise when he appears some will say Lord we are happy to meet you we have boldness to come to meet you and there will be another group of believers who will shrink away from him in shame at his coming this is talking to believers little children when he appears don't be those like those people oh, I took sin so lightly now I realize how serious it is the Lord invites us today not to condemn us he says, my son, my daughter, why do you want to live at that low level? Why do you want to live in a slum? I've got a palace for you to live in. A hygienic, clean place. Come up higher. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's an invitation to come up higher. Not to discourage us. Remember, it's not the law which gives you a standard and leaves you. He says, I'll do the difficult part. You roll away the stone, I'll raise the dead. You pour the water, I'll turn it into wine. It's always like that. You cast the net, I'll fill it with fish. That's always Jesus' way. You say yes, I'll strengthen you to keep that commandment, which now you think is impossible. That's what he did for me many years ago. It changed my life completely. After being defeated for 16 years as a born-again Christian, the Lord opened my eyes to see the wonder and the glory of new covenant life. That's why I'm a, I've got a passion for it. I pray that it will bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that understanding these truths in our mind won't help us. These are the words of eternal life. Many people rejected it when you preached it on earth. People reject it today. But Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will make it clear and true to all, I believe, so many here are hungry and needy. Please encourage them to believe that you will help them to come to this life. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.